Today we continue our study in the prophet Hosea as he calls the people of the northern kingdom of Israel unto repentance. And today we continue in Hosea chapter 6. And we'll be in Hosea 6 verse 4 through chapter 7 verse 3. Hosea 6 4. There was a man who showered his wife with gifts. Every time her eye would light upon a trinket, uh, she would no sooner speak the words than he was already buying it. Added to this was his constant declaration of love for her. He gushed over her. This was true love. Except that whenever she would be gone for a little while, whenever she was out of the house, he invited in other women. And he dared share his bed with these women. He failed to keep the marriage bed undefiled. The wife was oblivious to all this until one day, to her horror, as she enters into her house, there is her husband in the arms of another woman. This husband, who said he would buy the moon for her, was not hers alone. And she was repulsed. And she did what any good woman would do, separated from that man. Great shows and great words of affection do not make up for heinous acts of unfaithfulness. And today I want us to see in our passage that God seeks wholehearted devotion from his people, not half-hearted unfaithfulness. God seeks wholehearted devotion from his people, not half-hearted unfaithfulness. So let's turn to the scriptures and see uh, what God's word has to say for us today, starting in Hosea chapter 6, verse 4. This is the word of the Lord. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed in the evil deeds of Samaria. For they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. This is the word of the Lord. There has been, uh, been much accusation in the book of Hosea thus far. Uh, in, in particular about the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel towards God. Unless we are mistaken, I want to emphasize that these are a religious people. 
it is not though as though the the people of Israel are irreligious, right? That they're not doing anything uh, religious. Uh, no, they are. They're very religious. They they are exceedingly religious. But the problem is, is that their religion is bad. They are doing what is not in accord with what God has commanded. It's not to say that they didn't acknowledge God in some manner, but but they kind of did it out of the side of their mouths. They would worship and offer sacrifices and say, uh, here's one for, for our God, uh, here's one for the God of Israel, here's one for Baal, here's one for the Asherah, here, here's one for this God, that God, and the other. They acknowledged God, but they mixed worship of foreign gods with the worship of the one true living God. They sought to appease God, not love him. And in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 6, we have this passionate plea from Hosea to, to return, right? He says, turn back to the Lord. Hosea calls them unto re- repentance, right? Turning from their sinful ways and unto the Lord. And he knows that if the people would repent, that God would relent. That is, God would cease this path of destruction and devastation for the people. He would relent of his plans. But as hopeful a note as those verses might cast for us, we are brought very quickly back into the reality of the situation in the northern kingdom of Israel. And so I want us to see first, the faithless love leads to worthless acts. The faithless love leads to worthless acts. And this is in verses 4 to 6. And the scripture says, What shall I do with you, Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? This is kind of an expression of frustration and lament of God over his people. What shall I do with you? It's this kind of expression where we just kind of go, and, and hold up our hands and say, what, what, what do I, what do I need to do? It's something of the lament that Jesus gives over the city of Jerusalem. In Matthew 23, 37, Matthew 23, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Right, The city of Jerusalem is supposed to be the place where God dwells. Right, It's supposed to be this place where the temple's there. God's glory is there. They, of all people, should know the coming of the Lord. They, of all people, should want the coming of the Lord. They, of all people, should be obedient unto everything the Lord says. And yet Jesus' lament is this. How often? How often? What shall I do with you when I gather you? I want to gather you. I want to protect you. I want to provide for you. I want to bless you. How often? And yet, you were not willing. The prophets, you killed them. You killed the ones who spoke my word unto you. How often? And I wonder something too. If in view there, when Jesus says that, 
is not just his immediate situation, right? Not just talking about the three years of his ministry or the 30 years of his life, but I wonder how often, if that is not a question of, from the very beginning of the founding of the city of Jerusalem, Jesus says, how often? In the time of Hosea, Jesus is saying, how often I would have gathered you, I would have protected you, I would have kept you, I would have blessed you, and you were not willing. How often? What shall God do? So right, that's, that's the kind of question here. What shall I do? What do I do with such a people? And notice here that both Israel and Judah are indicted, right? He says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? And what shall I do with you, O Judah? And remember, Ephraim is just kind of a shorthand for Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah being the southern kingdom. We've already seen this in the book of Hosea, uh, and we've kind of seen a, a decline for the people of Judah. Because we start out on kind of a, uh, a hopeful note in chapter 4, verse 15, where God tells Judah, stay away from the Israelites, stay away from the northern kingdom and their cities and shrines, just stay away from them. They're false gods. And we kind of get the sense there maybe that there's a chance uh, that they could uh, be, be holy, be worshiping God in right manner. Uh, but then we get to chapter 5, verse 5, and we see that uh, the, the people of Judah are stumbling after the way of the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so we're kind of, well, that's not good. And now we get to this point and where it seems to be that there is, right, there's no hope. They're fully involved in their sins. What shall I do with you, O Judah? We know from the books of the history of the people of Judah uh, that they had periods of revival, of restoration, of awakening. Uh, but they also sink deep into the same sins and end up in the same place as the northern kingdom, exile. How often God would have gathered his people, as Jesus exclaims, and yet how often they turn and run from him. And what is God frustrated with them about? Their love. Their love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. And that word love there is, uh, that's the word hesed. So like we talk about God's love, it's covenant love, it's it's covenant loyalty, it's steadfast love, it's loving kindness. And so what God is saying is that their love is lacking. They're not loyal to their love. They do not love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and strength. They're not loyal to the covenant which they and their forefathers swore to be faithful to. No, their said is like fog. On a sunny day. It's like dew on a sunny morning. Quickly evaporated. Quickly gone. And so he says, how will God respond? How will he who the one who always keeps steadfast love respond? Therefore, verse 5, therefore, therefore I have hewn them by my prophets, by the prophets, and I have slain them by the words of my mouth. His word will go forth, shining light into the dark places. His judgments are sure. And this is the sense we get from this verse. God will bring his judgment to bear upon them. And how will they know? Well, through his word. 
Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God is living and active, right? Sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces. It reveals. It determines. It proves our motives. It shows us who we really are. The word of God will not fail, but abides forever. And as the light goes forth, we also understand that people of the darkness. Jesus tells us as much in John 3, verse 19, John 3, 19. <clears throat> and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Right? People are like cockroaches. As soon as the light is turned on, they scatter. They run. The light of God, the word of God, goes forth into the world and it exposes and it reveals the truth. And the last thing a sinful person wants revealed is the truth. It's the last thing we want. We much prefer people know us by what we pretend to be, by what we purport to be. We want people to see us as we want to be perceived by them, not as we really are. The word of God reveals the truth for the people of Israel in Hosea's time, and so too for us today in our own time. God's word reveals truth. And this is the truth. Verse 6, God says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God desires steadfast love over heartless religious acts. The people thought and the priests promised that God would forgive them and bless them if they gave the right sacrifices. Again, the issue is not that the people are irreligious. It's not as though they are not sacrificing. The thing is, they are sacrificing. The problem is, they sacrifice as a way to appease and placate God, not out of devotion and love to Him. They had no desire to please God. They only wanted to appease God. And understand that. Note the distinction there. Note what it means to appease and to please. In the first instance, when we are trying to appease someone, we will do the bare minimum necessary. We will do the bare minimum necessary. We'll do only that which we think is required. We won't go out of our way. Right? The desire of our heart when we are appeasing someone is not to go out of our way. We might give this example. Husband knows he's angered his wife. And so he says, well, I guess I better go to the store, get some flowers or something for her. So that way she'll calm down. I didn't really do anything wrong, but you know, I, I, I know she's angry, so I'm just going to do something to appease her, something to placate her. I know she saw, she, 
She's seen a pair of shoes that I know she wants, so I'm going to get that for her just as a way to get over this issue so we can have uh, some semblance of normalcy again. Does that sound like love? Does that sound like a desire to please, a husband's desire to please his wife? And often when we are appeasing someone, we grumble and complain about it the whole time, right? I don't know why I have to do this. This is stupid. But I know if I don't do it, she's going to be more, right? He's going to be more mad. He's, she's going to be more mad. But when we seek to please someone, right, when we want to please someone, we often do what is difficult, what is, what is trying. We go out of our way. We find ourselves with joy seeking to love them. So it's maybe something like this. Ooh, I know my parents don't like it when I leave my stuff all over the house. So before they get home and before they have to ask me to do it, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to clean up because I don't want them to have to deal with it when they get in. Right? We do the hard thing. We do the thing we don't necessarily want to do, but we do it with joy. We do it with love. We, we, we do it thinking of the other person, not thinking of ourselves. Right? When we appease, we think of ourselves. When we please, we think of others. Friend, are you trying to appease God or please him? Are your shows of religiosity motivated by a heart of love or by a desire to buy him off? Right religion is one that is motivated by a heart's love for God. It's when we do what we desire. And what we desire is what pleases God. This is what God is calling to you, uh, calling you to, brothers and sisters in Christ. Philippians 2.13 tells us, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. <clears throat> God's Spirit is at work in you, brothers and sisters, to do both what God wants, that you would want what God wants, and to do the very thing that God wants you to want, to, for that he wants, something like that. God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's working his purpose of sanctification in you, which is that you would be more like Christ. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The problem is not religion. The problem is not religious acts. But if you treat going to church on Sundays or taking part in Bible studies or doing any of a number of other religious accoutrements as a means to keep God happy, then you've turned from steadfast love to sacrifice as a means to placate God. And if that's where you are, you need to hear what Hosea has already said in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. 
For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The faithless love leads to worthless acts. And let's see next how the unfaithful men make for murderers. In verses 7 and 9, the unfaithful men make for murderers. As we come to verse 7, we come again to some question as to how best to translate the Hebrew. Uh, We have some difficulties, the first of which is uh, in the ESV it says, but like Adam, so Adam, uh, there it seems to signify, ESV is saying that signifies the first man, Adam. The problem is, is that the Hebrew word Adam is also a generic word, which means man. So Adam was literally named man. That's interesting. There you go for it. So the question is, what should we understand this word to represent? Uh, The KJV, for instance, renders it the generic men or mankind. And then we have the second weird part. So to understand how we how we interpret that, we also have the second part of verse where it says, there they have dealt faithlessly with me. So where is there? There is where, right? Some, some kind of weird uh, Dr. Seuss book. Where is there? Uh, and there's nothing, it doesn't relate to what comes, which is Gilead. There doesn't seem to be anything before it in the context that would suggest an answer there. We do know uh, from history that there was a town near the Jordan River called Adam. So maybe it's in reference to that. Uh, commentator Dwayne Garrett helps, I think, solves this question well uh, by putting it this way, by suggesting the verse means something like this. Like Adam as in the first man, they have broken the covenant. That's what Adam did when he sinned, right? God had made a covenant with him. Eat of all the trees except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you will live. Be fruitful and multiply. But that was the covenant. Adam broke the covenant by eating of the tree he wasn't supposed to. Right? So so the verse means something like, like Adam, the first man, they have broken the covenant, and like Adam, the city... They are faithless to me. Uh, We don't know much about the city, Adam. But what we can conjecture is that in this time, in this age, they probably had shrines to false gods, false god or false gods. They probably had places of false worship. They were faithless. They were unfaithful. Whichever way we understand it, the point is this, right? It is exactly this. The people are unfaithful. They've broken the covenant. And we can say this of the people of Israel, right? They broke the covenant. They were supposed to be God's chosen people. They were supposed to live in a certain way. They were supposed to worship no other gods. And they're doing all the things they're not supposed to be doing. And they're not doing the things they are supposed to be doing. They broke the covenant. They've committed spiritual adultery. We know that they are unfaithful. What shall God do with them? Continue on, we see verse 8, Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. We don't know the exact context of to what this means, but it could be a story from 2 Kings 15, 2 Kings 15, verses 23 through 25. 
2 Kings 15, 23 to 25. You're welcome to turn there. And we know that uh, during this period, as Hosea is preaching after Jeroboam II, so that's the first and most uh, kind of prominent king in which Hosea's ministry takes place, is that the, the kingship of Israel becomes tumultuous. There's lots of assassinations, intrigue going on in the courts of Israel. And we have one such example out of 2 Kings 15. In the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, the son of Manahem, began to reign over Israel and Samaria. And he reigned two years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had made Israel to sin. And Pekah, the son of Ramalia, his captain, conspired against him with 50 men of the people of Gilead and struck him down in Samaria. In the citadel of the king's house with Argob and Aria, he put him to death and reigned in his place. So maybe Hosea is referencing this issue. Gilead's a city tracked with blood, footprints of blood. There's murder going on, bloody footprints on the streets. Again, metaphorically here, not quite literally, but metaphor- metaphorically. If not for Second Kings 15, then probably for some other reason that we just don't know the context to. But what do we know about the people of Israel during this time? Well, Hosea has already told us, Hosea 4.2, there's swearing, lying, murder, stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. This is what typified the people. So even if it wasn't for a specific instance of assassination that Gilead is being indicted here and brought up, it is certainly because there's this just pattern. There's this pattern of murder over and over again in this land. Verse 9 continues, As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. Again, we don't know the full context of what the priests are being accused of here, uh, what God is accusing them of, but the sense seems to be something like this. The priests are like a bunch of bandits out to rob and destroy. This isn't the kind of priests that you want, right? This isn't the kind of pastors you want, the kind that get together like a gang of ruffians and go and rough people up. But this is who the priests are. We know that Hosea has, again, already addressed the sins of the priesthood. Uh, God has already spoken to this in Hosea 4, 7 to 9. Hosea 4, 7 to 9. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. Right? Hosea says there, the more the priests raise in number, the more their iniquity increased. Uh, the more the prominence, the more their greed rose. And they were greedy. They wanted to feed on the sins of the people. They wanted to feed on the people themselves. And how many so-called preachers and teachers there are out there in and among the church today who rob the sheep. They promise the blessings of God if you bless them with your wallet. They promise healing and wholeness if you make them fat and wealthy. They stand in contrast to the Apostle Paul who writes to the church of Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 2, 5 to 8. 1 Thessalonians 2, 5 to 8. 
For we never came with words of flattery, Paul writes, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Right, Paul says, we could have made demands of you. We were apostles of Christ. We have a right. But rather than take support from them, he says, me and my co-workers and the gospel, instead we gave like a nursing mother. Right, A nursing mother doesn't take from her child, gives to her child, only gives to her child because the child has nothing to give to her. He had a deep love for this church, and he sought to see it grow in every way in the knowledge and grace of Christ Jesus. And we ought to expect of our own leaders in the church loving service, not men who are looking to make a profit off of the people of God. This is what you need to look for in a pastor. Is he there to serve or is he there to be served? This church is the standard you need to hold me to. The priests in Hosea's day are like robbers, raiders. Right? They're, they're hiding behind the rocks waiting for the right target to come by so they can jump out and rob them. Maybe leave them for dead. And now here we also note an issue in the Hebrew text, uh, the ESV continues and says they murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. Uh, some other translations, most modern translations use that word Shechem there to indicate the city Shechem. Uh, the idea being something like that as the people maybe pass through Shechem to go to Jerusalem to worship. The priests say, oh, don't worry about going all the way to Jerusalem. Come in here. Come in here. Give your sacrifices here. We'll make you right with God. And the idea being that they're murdered because spiritually they're dead. Spiritually they kill because they induce the people who are trying to worship God into worshiping false gods. So the priests are murdering. The priests are spiritually killing these people by leading them into false worship. Some translations, again, like uh, some of the older translations, like the KJV, understand this word to be the word for shoulder, uh, which is not what it says there, but it's because it says with consent. And that is to say, they understand that that word shoulder is metaphorically meaning for consent. So it means something like they kill people spiritually with full consent and knowledge of what they are doing. They know what they're doing. What can we say to that? Well, they commit villainy, right? As the ESV says, they act with lewdness. They, they're spiritually out of it, spiritually off the mark, sinful. Uh, what else do you call people who, who wait in the rocks to murder someone who passes by, but villains, right? Lewd villains. It is no small thing to do the evil deeds they do and to draw others to do the same. And it's worse. It's worse here, right? It's a worse thing because who are these people? They're priests. They're supposed to be the ones teaching people knowledge of God. And they're not doing it. 
They're supposed to be leading in holiness. Instead, they're leading in lewdness. The faithless love leads to worthless acts. The unfaithful men make for murderers. And now let's see, thirdly, the all-seeing God grants no forgiveness. The all-seeing God grants no forgiveness. In verse 10 through uh, chapter 7, verse 3, God continues and says, verse 10, In the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's prostitution is there. Her her whoredom is there. Her, Her spiritual adultery is there. Israel is defiled, is unclean, right? The people of Israel are unclean, immoral, full of filth. (laughs) To which God adds in verse 11, For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. What God says to the northern kingdom of Israel equally applies to the southern kingdom of Judah. And as a side, while again this southern kingdom did experience times of covenant faithfulness and renewal, there often was lingering rot in their midst. Just so we get an idea and understanding of this, consider 1 Kings 15, 1 Kings 15, verses 11 through 14. And this kind of typifies the, the periods of renewal and restoration that the people of Judah, southern kingdom of Judah, experienced. 1 Kings 15, verse 11. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his father had made. He also removed Makkah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. So I'm going to pause there and say, that sounds all pretty good. But listen to this, 14. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, so understand, right, the author of First Kings, God is saying something here. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. But this is what kind of typifies the restoration in the, in the southern kingdom. The issue with the high places is they may have been worshiping Yahweh there, right, God, but they weren't doing it as God had prescribed. Where does God say he was to be worshiped? In the temple in Jerusalem. That was it. The temple's there. That's where they're supposed to be worshiping, not on every high place. So again, there's just this lingering problem in the southern kingdom, and it's something that that ends in their ruin. Uh, It kind of is reminiscent to me of the book of Judges. If you go back to the book of Judges, uh, we see that the people of Israel, as they take the promised land, uh, they push so far, and then they kind of just stop. God said, remove all the peoples from your midst. And they're like, nah, that's a lot of work. And that's what led them to experience the decay, the destruction, the devastation that we see in the book of Judges, where they're captured because they start straying. Uh, By the way, this is, again, an aside to my aside here. Uh, There are times when we have our pet sins and we don't want to really get rid of them. We may make a good show of restoration and push out a lot of those things, but we'll leave the one little idol remaining in the corner and put a, put a cloak over it and say, that's over there in the corner. Uh, it's not really in my heart. God's not satisfied with that. It's difficult. It's painful to get rid of the idols that we love. But we must 
destroy them all and not leave the one sitting in the corner. The people have lingering idolatry and it would lead to their ruin. And I I just posit that for you. Lingering idolatry leads to ruin. Don't do it. And I'm preaching that as much to myself as I am to you. Now, the second part of verse 11 here, right? But, but for you also, Judah, harvest is appointed. The second part here, when I restore the fortunes of my people, scholars agree, this is a bad verse division. That portion should be down in chapter 7, verse 1. It's not supposed to be part of 611 because it just doesn't make sense. But I... Uh, but but let's continue. It says, so when I restore the fortunes of my people, and then verse 1, uh, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria. So God says, whenever I am moved to heal, when I am moved to restore, when I am moved to bless, all he sees is their sin. The sin of the people is exposed. The evils of their ways are ever present. And what kind of evils do they do? Here we have some accusations. There's three things here, right? They deal falsely. That is, they lie, cheat, and steal. Uh, you can't go and get a good deal in the market because everyone's using crooked weights. They deal falsely. The thief breaks in. So not only, not only do you get robbed in the marketplace, but by the time you get your stuff home, someone's already been in your home and robbed you. Right? People are always out to make a buck, and it's better if it's not theirs. Right? It's better if it's yours that they're making a buck of. What's this to say? Society's breaking down here. Right? There's no respect. There is no, there is no respect for others' property. Third, bandits raid. I really like, like how the, the net translation puts this. Gangs rob people out in the streets. Ruffians are roaming out there and they're roughing people up. Bandits raid. This doesn't really sound like a society you want to live in, does it? Uh, By the way, I think there's something to be said of our own society in this. Is this what we see? They deal falsely. How much of marketing is about dealing falsely? How much, how much do we hear of these of our uh, the mega corporations who contain things, uh, who contain our data, use our data, uh, do things with our data that they never said that they were going to do? The thief breaks in and steal. We may feel a little more safer from that being in a rural place. Certainly, that's the experience of those in the city. But it's the experience here, too. It happens. The bandits raid outside. I don't know that we have gangs roaming around outside in our own city, but certainly in other cities. Society is breaking down, and it doesn't really sound like a place you want to live in. And worse than all these evils, look at verse 2 here. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. All worse than the civil and societal ills is this. The people sin and sin and sin, and yet do not consider God in their sinning. They seem to be rather blissfully ignorant 
of their sinful behavior. And it seems very much like a society aboard a pirate ship. Not one that should be characterized as the people of God. The people may be ignorant, but God is not. Because he remembers all their evil. And now their deeds surround them. Now judgment is coming. They are before my face, God says. I see them. And the idea, too, is this something like when he looks at the land of the northern kingdom of Israel, he doesn't see his people. All he sees is sin. He sees sin. He looks upon them and he can't find his people. He sees only sin. God knows what they are doing. Well, Moses prays, well, Moses prays so many years before Hosea even speaks, right? Well, Moses prays is true in Psalm 90, verse 8, Psalm 90, verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Or as Hosea will say in Hosea 9, 9, they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah, he will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Make no mistake, friend, that God sees your sins. He sees all the evil that you do. He knows the intentions of your heart. He knows what motivates you. Don't be mistaken about this. God will bring you to account. Verse 3 of chapter 7, by their evil they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. This sin issue is not just a problem among the common people. It extends even up into the leadership and we know that. We've seen some of that already and we'll get more into this, uh, especially as we talk about the political leadership, the government, uh, in the rest of chapter 7. We really get into this, but we get a taste of it here. And the idea is something like this. The king's courtiers scheme, uh, murder, do all sorts of wicked things, and the king loves it. The king's happy with it. You know why? Because here comes his favorite courtier carrying the head of his enemy. And I don't maybe mean that quite uh, metaphorically, I mean that quite literally. I don't know that that's what literally happened, but I'm, you know what I'm saying here. The idea is this, they commit evil, they bring evil to the king, and the king is glad about it. He's happy. For now, see this, the common people, they're thieving, they're murdering, they're roaming about like gangs. The priests, they're like gangs too, right? They're a band of robbers, they're raiders, murdering. And even here we see the government. It's a court of intrigue. Deception and murder are, is the way to ascend in the ranks, in the courtship, in the court of the king of Israel. 
society in the northern kingdom of Israel can be described, I think, as in a free fall. And they could be characterized in much the same way as the Pharisees in Jesus' own day. This from Matthew 23, verses 27 to 28. Matthew 23, 27 to 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. Isn't that a nice shiny tomb? but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. God is not satisfied with half-hearted unfaithfulness. God is not appeased. He will not be placated. And he will not be pleased with the kind of worship that seeks to paint over wickedness. There are many within churches today, and I tremble as I say this, as much for my own sake as for your sakes. There are many within churches today that will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ on the day of judgment and be cast forever into that place called hell. There are many who think that their good works will be enough to save them. There are many who believe that showing up on Sunday is enough to get them into heaven. To you, God says, I see your wickedness. You may try to hide it under a veneer of religiosity. You may say the right things and you may even do good things. But as Jesus said to the Pharisees, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And he will say, as he says in Matthew seven twenty three, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. All who think earthly sacrifice will appease the wrath of God are mistaken. Those who think he desires religious ritual over real religion are wrong. For such ones, you, if this is you, not someone else in the room. Not someone else that you're thinking of. This is you. You shall surely be thrown out of the kingdom of heaven into that place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. God knows the truth of your hearts. Paul writes in Romans 8, 5 to 8. Romans 8, 5 to 8. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. We'll pause there and say, what does it mean to set our minds on the things of the flesh? If you are so concerned with the things of this world, if you are consumed with this world, if your only thought when you wake up in the morning is obsessed with the things of this world, you have set your mind on the things of the flesh. If you are only concerned about yourself, you have set your mind on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Listen to this. Listen to what God's Word says to you. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh 
cannot please God. To set your minds on the thing of the flesh means to live in the sinfulness of the world, to seek your own sinful, selfish ends. And this is the state that we are all born into. This is our natural state. And the, the result of our natural state is death. It's hostility to God. An utter inability to please God. And what the people of Israel in Hosea's day needed, and what you need is a change of heart. A change that can only be wrought by God. A change that was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you, friend, you can be changed. You can have a spirit-set mind. You can have life, eternal life. But it means repentance. It means turning from sin and turning to God. It means trusting in the Lord Christ Jesus. Believing in Him. Trusting in Him. Believing in His life, death, and resurrection. Entrusting yourself wholly to Him. And so I would say to you, cry out this day to God. Cry out to Christ Jesus. Ask Him to save you. Plead with Him to save you from the coming day of wrath. And then live loving Him. If you comprehend something of the love of God for you, love Him in return. Follow Him wholeheartedly, not half-heartedly. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God is seeking wholehearted worshipers. He is not satisfied with a half-hearted unfaithfulness. And I'm very careful with that language. There is no such thing as half-hearted faithfulness. It's only half-hearted unfaithfulness. Because if we're half-hearted in it, we're not faithful. right? Understand that. Comprehend that. Grasp that. He calls you to love Him with all your strength and mind and soul. And He commands you to love your neighbor as yourself. All society maybe around us may be in decline, but that doesn't give us license to live like they do. All the world may ridicule, harass, and even attack us for proclaiming faith in God, for striving to walk in holiness, for believing in God and taking Him at His word. But this does not mean that we can back down, shy away, or flee. All our friends may leave us. Our families may forsake us, yet still must we ever press on toward that heavenly city. Not truly alone, because Christ is always with us. The world is passing away, writes the Apostle John, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You will abide forever, beloved. If, if you are in Christ, you will abide forever. That's you. Take heart. Let's pray. O oh, great Father in heaven, how much we stand in need of your mercy and grace. For Father, we confess freely that there is nothing, there is nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing that we can do to pay for our sins. Our sin, the, the debt of our sin is so great. The, the depravity of our nature is so pervasive. Lord, that we can do nothing, nothing holy, righteous, or good save that which you work in us.
God, we need your mercy and grace. We need the regeneration and renewal of the Spirit. And we thank you, Father, for those of us who believe in Christ Jesus, for, for, for doing that work. God, we thank you for opening our blind eyes to see the truth. Father, we thank you for unstopping our ears that we may truly hear of your word. And Father, we confess shamefully confess how often we fail to live as you have called us to live. You have purpose that we walk in holiness and Father, how often we turn to unholy things. Father, forgive us. And Lord, Grant unto us a whole heart to seek you, to love you, to love others as you command us to. Father, we are in such need of your mercy and grace. And Lord God, we thank you. Oh, we thank you that you are quick to give it. God, we thank you for our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who stands by your throne, who beckons us to come forward and find the grace and mercy we need in our time of need. We thank you for the work of our mediator, Christ Jesus, who bore the wrath deserved by us. We love you, Lord. Enlarge our love for you. We pray, we plead this morning. And God, we recognize that not all will be saved. And that there are those yet who will be saved, who have not believed in Christ Jesus. Father, we pray that you would have mercy on many. Father, that you would send your spirit to regenerate and renew them, even in this moment, that they would confess their need of Christ. Father, have mercy Father, how we plead, how we plead, be reconciled unto God. Lord, our Father, we pray for your mercy and grace. And thank you. Oh, we thank you for it. In the name of Christ Jesus, we thank you. Amen.